Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and I'm still summarizing for you one year's worth of incredible water insights from the 52 experts that appeared on this microphone in 2021. Today's the beast. I'm joined by no less than 16 of them. Now that's quite logical given the topic, the UN SDG 6 and how the water sector aligns itself to fight water scarcity and provide water for all. A complex topic? Well, not for Mina Gudi. Everybody in water will tell you how complicated it is. We need to make water simple. It is simple. If we don't have it, we die. And that is a straightforward statement. According to UNICEF, each day nearly 1,000 children die due to preventable water and sanitation-related diarrheal diseases. It is shocking statistics and it makes access to clean water and sanitation one of the most urgent sustainable development goals. I could be enforcing Hasmik Basagian's statistic by explaining how one million people die from water, sanitation, hygiene-related diseases every year, how every two minutes a child dies from a water-related disease, or how a child under five is 20 times more likely to die from a waterborne illness than from war-related violence. But as Mina Guli rightfully corrects, We need to bring these numbers to life, and we need to help people to understand that these aren't just numbers on a page, they're real people's lives in places all over the world. The problem is that for many, me included honestly, this sometimes sounds like an abstract story. What? No water? Come on, are you serious? But then I talk to my parents and my parents are actually a Second World War refugee children. So they know exactly how it is to carry the water home. generation away that I live in pure luxury and and health and without any problems at all and they experience the absolute opposite. In fact, as Ulrike Ken just reminded us, our water safety is much more fragile than we think. It swiftly changes with conflicts and wars, not talking of climate change. And as Hasmik Barsegian explains, your gender plays a role too. Men and women are impacted differently by climate change and climate change places a greater burden on women because of the social and cultural roles and responsibilities that women have. The UN figures indicate that 80% of people displaced by climate change are women. Here as well, we see that women are more vulnerable. Talking of climate change, as Dennis Moll explains, we can't expect it to give us a rest. We alluded to the discussion about day zero in Cape Town, but you know, it's going to be day zero for many countries. In Cape Town, day zero referred to the point where municipal water supply would have to be shut down because of the water shortage. Since the Cape Town event in 2017, similar challenges arose in other places like Chennai in 2019. And the reason why it hasn't yet impacted more places around the world lies in the fact that we are heavily withdrawing the savings we had in the bank, aka we are overusing groundwater which doesn't renew that fast. Hence, as Graham Pierce identifies, the amount of groundwater that contributes to the total water available to humanity, that's going to decline. It must decline. And it can't be basically replaced by surface water because we are in many cases abstracting the surface water to the maximum possible that we can without destroying rivers and other ecosystems. So we have no choice but to develop either reuse or desalination or a combination of both. 
In our deep dive on water reuse, we've specifically covered how this is supposed to support 9% of our water needs by 2030, while desalination contributes to a further 2%. And it is true that, as Nathkaran Singh Baga notes, The world in general can't complain about a lack of water, because we literally have a water body, a water source close by. The challenge there comes in is that how accessible is portable water? But Alice Schmidt is convinced that relying solely upon a technological race to cover our future water needs might be short-sighted. I think also not fall victim to the thinking that technology is going to save us. Technology is a hugely important part of the puzzle and always has been, right? But not every technology is good just because it's a technology. Indeed, there's a bigger picture at play, as Dennis Moll and Ali Schmidt again remind us. We have pushed all the natural boundaries to the point of breaking. I don't think we intentionally set out to do that, Antoine. I think we did it out of ignorance. You know, we thought we were clever, but we weren't that clever. There's very interesting research that tells us that for the longest time, until quite recently, it actually served us humans quite well to abuse nature. You can think of that as services that the planet has been providing to us humans for free. We are now much healthier, wealthier, and in a much better position than you know our ancestors were in many, many ways. But we are now starting to damage ourselves. People are worried about what it costs to invest in sustainability, but that's totally the wrong argument. You should calculate those costs, but they're much lower than the cost of unsustainability. We are used in the water industry to see any new treatment or effort to clean up as a new cost. Because indeed, nothing's for free. So extending a network, building a treatment plant or surveying water quality will have a cost. The new lens Alice's remark brings is to reverse the approach. What's the cost of doing nothing? What's the impact of inaction? Henrik Egerman and Marc Barra say nothing else. In the past, we've had a tendency to take a very human-centric approach to treatment. So as long as the humans get safe water, job's done. Now we're recognizing, oh, there's actually a, a price tag attached to biodiversity loss. Other ecological crises will come in the next month, in the next years, and, and that's just the beginning of climate change and of biodiversity decline. If we always reproduce the same pattern, uh, saying that uh, first is the economy and Very enterprises true. and business, and then after nature, uh, there will be a point uh, where there will be no more economy because it, it depends of na on nature. This is also what Claudia Winkler and Ali Schmidt describe in their sustainability puzzle book as Mickey Mouse thinking. Yes, everybody agrees that sustainable development exists and relies on a triple bottom. But that triple bottom today is heavily unbalanced. The economy is Mickey's head, while environment and societal aspects only are its ears. This is why John Elkington, the creator of the triple bottom himself, recalled his concept. If everyone uses it as an excuse to keep doing what they've always done, he doesn't want to support it. So what shall we do instead? Well, we could follow Michael Stanley Galisdorfer's wisdom. The basic idea is that we're not solving water problems just for making money. We're solving them for social reasons and for environmental reasons. And we can prove that over time. So what did we see so far? Well, clearly, there's a problem. Too many people don't have access to safe water sources and the challenge will not solve itself alone. And what are we doing? Well... It's actually shocking. First of all, how disconnected people are and how apathetic people are at fixing 
or helping to fix the problem. As you see, according to Dennis Moll, we don't do much and it is an understatement. For Mina Gulli, it is even worse. Because in a place or for a topic like water, we've failed for years because we've fought against one another or we've been lobbying one another to do things. And the reality is that we'll only succeed if we start to unite and work in the same direction. In one word, Denise, don't you think we've made a mess? I don't think we intentionally set out to, to, to make a mess. We just happen to make a mess. Now that we know we've made a mess, can we actually ignore it? Or do we not have an obligation to fix it? I'd say we do. But I'm just one person. The problem is that on the broader scale of things, that mess doesn't get the attention it deserves, as David Lloyd Owen confirms. Every government at the moment has has to make hard decisions. And water is always going to be down on the agenda politically. Well, wait a second. I thought things were clear. In September 2015, 193 countries adopted the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. These 17 goals were supposed to pave a sustainable road towards 2030. And for water, SDG 6 is very clear. We will ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all by 2030. A challenge when you consider that in 2020, 2 billion people lacked safely managed drinking water, 3.6 billion people lacked safely managed sanitation, and 2.3 billion people lacked basic hygiene. But what's a challenge when 193 countries unite to overcome it? You see it coming, don't you? Progress towards SDG 6 is running at a quarter of the level required. David Lloyd Owen further breaks down how much we are currently set to miss the goal in his Global Water Funding book. Regarding safe and affordable drinking water for all, 70% of the 193 countries will meet the goal by 2030. Another 72% will partially meet the goal, but 11% will be in a worse situation in 2030 than they were in 2015. And for sanitation and hygiene? Well, it's even worse. Only 11% of the countries are set to meet the goal by 2030. 72% again will partially meet the goal and 17% will be in a worse situation by 2030. Let me repeat that. More countries will be in a worse situation regarding sanitation and hygiene in 2030 than will reach the goal. Hence, Mina Guli's urge. Could we actually accelerate action? Because here's the thing about water. We don't have 20 years, 30 years or 40 years to solve this problem. The problem is that we are simply not walking the sustainable talk. To achieve SDG 6 by 2030, the world needs to spend an additional $43 billion per year on drinking water and $70 billion per year on sanitation. You see the next question coming. What are we really investing? Well, $16 billion only and for both. 14% of what would be needed. When looking at that, David Lloyd Owen and Mina Guli have diverging opinions. I think the reasonable target for SDG 6 by 2030 would be that we have the capacity to start working on delivering it. Um, it turns out, for example, in the latest monitoring report, which came out a couple of weeks ago, that a large number of countries still don't even have an de accepted definition of what safe water is let alone a program to install it. Problems in meeting targets need to be overcome because there is no choice but to succeed in delivering on the targets set out in SDG 6. Failure is not an option. For David, let's be realistic and do our best to align ourselves by 2030 to meet the goal by 2050. For Mina, it is simply not acceptable to fail the goal. What do you think? I'd be curious come tell me in the comments or on LinkedIn. But either ways, one thing's for sure, you eat an elephant piece by piece, as Leah Imobersteg recalls. If we say we want to 
no change the whole world would be sitting here and drafting a plan for the next 40 years and don't do anything so what's our short goal our short incentive for action that can start things moving Minaguli believes there's a potential milestone in 2023 i think we're at a really unique moment in time which is that we have an opportunity to move from water is a major problem to saying how can we be part of the solution And that unique moment is an opportunity in 2023 when the United Nations hosts their big conference on water, the first in almost 50 years. And we have an opportunity at that time to say enough talk, now act. And the only way that that will happen is if we spend the next 18 months moving together in a unified way to deliver on these three solutions and to say by the time we hit the steps of that United Nations, there must be no option but to take meaningful, serious, bold action forward on water. For Aaron Tartakovsky, that could be an opportunity to transform our approach towards the way we design and think our water management. If we look at 70% of the world's population living in cities by 2050, we can either build back the exact same way or we have a moment right now in history where we can kind of rethink and re-engineer how we're designing our cities when it comes to water and wastewater. It might also be an opportunity to zoom out before we zoom in, which is a concept that's key for Claudia Winkler. We need to look at things from various perspectives. If we all stay in our function, our silos, or business people in their business function, technical people in their function, water people in the water field, the energy people in the energy field, we will not have a chance to look at a holistic picture. And we need to get together and, and see these things. And once we zoom in again, what do we do? Well, for Minaguli, it's very straightforward. I think we need to do three things. I think we need to mobilize a call for action worldwide. Second, we need to put water onto the global agenda. And then third, we need to chart a clear path forward for action. To succeed in rolling out this plan, we'll need everyone to buy in, an approach we've covered in our deep dives on the water stories we shall tell and on water's value. Paulo Callahan is proposing an interesting synthesis to that extent, and Hasmik Barseillon agrees. Things get regulated when people care about them. Policies that are popular are much, much easier for politicians to push through. The mayor is unlikely to do something that is going to be unpopular with people. So getting people to care about water, getting people to value water is really the start. And how do you do that? With water, people need to understand that there is value here. There's value for everybody. There's value for our ecosystems, our cities, ourselves in terms of our own health. And if we can get people to view it like that, then everything becomes much, much easier. We need to work on fostering this relationship with water in order to encourage greater prioritization of the protection of freshwater resources, rivers, lakes, and water stored underground, etc. As well as better management of water services. If citizens better understand this relationship, they will participate more and join efforts to solve common challenges. We shall all be like the hummingbird and contribute to the movements by doing our part, embed sustainability in our business practices, as Jacob Bossar suggests, and go the extra mile, as Ali Schmidt proposes. I believe that any young business that starts now has to be sustainable and not brag about, oh, how, look how sustainable you are. It's not just about ensuring sustainability. Sustainability is not enough. If we sustain what we have today, that's actually wrong. It's about regeneration. We have to be even more ambitious. We want businesses to regenerate the planet. And if beyond the rational and the path forward, you need this extra motivation kick to start changing the world, I let Mina Guli conclude with the pep talk. I think too often we've looked at these big global challenges, climate change, water, all of these things, and we say, 
It's too big and I'm just one person. What on earth could I possibly do that will deliver meaningful change at the scale that it needs to to solve this problem? And the reality is, as we'll explore over this podcast, we are all capable of doing anything. Did you like this deep dive? Then tell it to your friends and colleagues and share that episode. Achieving SDG 6 won't happen alone, as we've just seen. So the more we are to push the message, the better our chances that it gets heard. If you'd like to further explore the topic, listen to my full interviews with each of the 16 experts featured in this synthesis. All the links are in the description. And if you haven't done it yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform so that you don't miss the next leg in our journey, which will be about water networks. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.